we could we could go another way in the future. Kaz is about to tell a joke. <laughs> Warning. <laughs> I will move that to another spot. Oh, I like that. <laughs> what was your question? Why'd you take your windsock off? Because I was You can use your spit screen or a windsock. Right. What's a spit screen? That's this thing. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. But that was also blocking. This is, I mean, I'd rather have the sock on this because that kind of blocks my view. Would you? Can you hand me that up there? Next to my dragon. Next to the dragon. Yeah, I'm going to give him some, give my mic some protection. Well, also it uh, removes all the popping when you say peas pop, pop, pop. To a degree. To a degree. To a degree. Ready to count it down? All right. I guess I'm ready. Everybody else ready? Ready. Count it down. Five, four, three, two, one. Hi, I'm Patricia Kaufman, and I'm here today with Confederate Postal History, and you're listening to Stamp Show here today. Look at them, madam. Have you ever in your entire life seen anything so beautiful? I'm sorry, I don't know anything about stamps. This is the gentle art of philately, otherwise known as stamp collecting. Here's a pile of stamps carefully culled from swap meets and garage sales. Rufus, what are you thinking of? Oh, I was just thinking of all the years I've wasted collecting stamps. Oh, like stamp collecting. Now, that's all right. That's quite a nice hobby, that. Yes, but it's not enough. Don't you understand? I'm lonely. I'm so terribly lonely. All right, Homer. You beat those stamp Nazis with good old-fashioned American complaining. Oh, if it weren't for you, we'd be at the mercy of weekend philatelists. You know, why didn't you just say stamp collectors? Because I'm tired of dumbing myself down for you. I, I mean, I have to say, when I, when I heard that, like, people actually watch this show, I was, I was actually pretty surprised. I collect stamps. From Spain and two from Japan. I got a couple from Israel and Azerbaijan. I got a plenty from Poland, but none from Sudan or from Fiji or Uzbekistan. Stamp collecting happens when we dream together. Welcome to Stamp Show here today, episode number 92. Now, gluten free. I'm Cash. Beat the rush. Buy your Christmas tree stands now. This is Tom. And I'm your host, Dawn. So sit back and relax. This shouldn't hurt too much. Okay. If you're sure no gas, well, let's get started. So go ahead and uh, yeah, bring it on. Turn it up my chest down. Scott is in Houston at the Greater Houston Stamp Show. So we have a guest expert with us, Ray Martin of Quality Philatelic. Hello there. Hi, hey, Ray. Ray. Oh, by the way, you just got back from Riverside, right? Yes. You had a long drive up here? Uh, yeah, the traffic was pretty bad. So tell us about what you were doing because it's interesting. Well, I went down to look at, uh, I run ads and I buy stamps off these ads and I had a gentleman call and I went out to see what he had and nothing of interest in the stamps, but then he mentioned he had coins. So I looked at his coins, and I managed to buy some coins that made the trip worthwhile. Oh, well, good. Congratulations. Thank you. This week, we will be discussing junk mail in the 1830s, 
Cash's Corrections, and our expert topic is a discussion about the stamp market. So, this day in history. 123 years ago, on September 16, 1893, settlers make the famous land run in the Cherokee Strip in Oklahoma. In stamp collecting, you can find Oklahoma territorial mail cancels from this period right up to statehood, which was in 1907. They are premium items, and you should keep an eye out for them. I tried to find some Oklahoma jokes to put here, but there weren't any that were funny, so, well, that. Crickets. Listener emails. We get emails at Stamp Show here today, so summon the answer squad. Our first one is from Joe Fodar. Dear SSHT, it's a terrible acronym. <laughs> I can't argue him. I, I can't argue with that either. I know you're all big Mad Magazine fans, and we were all saddened to hear of the death of Jack Davis at age 91, one of the greatest cartoonists of all time. Lynn's ran an obituary, but it didn't mention anything about the mail carrier Jack Davis drew on the stamp he designed. The smiling jelly figure on the left who was a dead ringer for Jack Davis himself. Was there any controversy about a living person being on that stamp? Did Jack Davis ever get in trouble for doing this? What is the rule for a living person being represented on a U.S. postage stamp? And why is this rule necessary, do you think? From Joe and Flatbush. Well, first, uh, you're supposed to only have uh, dead people on stamps. But that kind of went out the window because they made Harry Potter stamps and all those people were alive at the time. Um, presidents can be on instantly. Wait, Harry Potter's real and he's still alive? Harry Potter is real. And, well, he, he hasn't died in the books. <laughs> you can still run through the wall at the train station and go to Hogwarts. So that sounds like that's like a, um, you can have fictional character being portrayed by a real person and get away with that. Well, they've had plenty of real people on real stamps also, which were um, roundly criticized. But uh, what the reason is, obviously, you know, you put Michael Jackson on a stamp when he dies, and then five years later you find he was a drug addict pedophile, allegedly, just in case anybody out there is going to sue me. And all of a sudden, you know, you can start a collection of pedophiles on stamps, and everybody wants to avoid that. I'm looking at him funny. <laughs> well, I mean, you can collect topicals of whatever you want. But I have here the, uh, the pictures of the stamps uh, that Mad Magazine made. And some of them are really, really great. Tom liked the Blizzard of 1888 stamp, which is basically a solid white stamp. But a lot of them, it's interesting because they come pretty close to looking like real stamps. I seem to think we had a podcast regarding these quite a while ago, didn't we? No, we should. We could. Well, because we're talking about the, what is it, the jowly figure on one of them? Yeah, this guy right here. But they weren't actual stamps. No. So that's, we didn't kind of mention that part. Well, they were, they were mock-up stamps, but they weren't actual postage. They're labels. They're perforated labels. And yeah, I guess if you make a perforated label, you can put a living person on it all you want. But didn't I hear somewhere that someone actually used one as postage and actually went through? Yes. 
they had the <laughs> the um, Alfred E. Newman for president stamp, and it was it has the number four president, and it looks like a postage stamp that would be issued. And I guess you know if the mail carrier was going quick, he wouldn't catch it. But again, you know it wasn't phosphor tagged or anything either. Next from EC. Hi, folks. I've heard a lot of discussion on the podcast about grading, but it's always in reference to U.S. stamps. Do you see a market in graded stamps developing for, say, British Empire or South American stamps, etc.? Or do you think that grading will be confined to U.S. philately? Thanks. Well, in my opinion, what we see here is U.S., China, and Canada, but we tend to get the entire world but we get it in very small quantities. Well, you know, you have things, you talk about grading, you know, some of the countries like Thailand on the early stuff, they don't expect to find it in high grade. They don't expect to find it in every hand. So when they do, they don't really pay a large premium for that sort of item. Yeah, so the premiums, are, let's say that grading happens everywhere because everybody does care about the condition of the stamp. But the premiums that you see, for really high-grade stamps really only occurs right now in China, Canada, and the United States. Other places have the premium, like Britain, but, you know, they talk about an extra fine stamp being one and a half times to two times catalog. And here in the United States, extra fine, which would be a grade 95, maybe four or five times catalog. So the percentages are smaller. Now it's time for Stamp Stories. The first direct mailing campaign. Being election season, we'll discuss America's first direct mail campaign and some censorship of the mail. Last week, we told the story of the Comstock law that made it illegal to send dick pics in 1890s. Say that again. I wasn't happy saying it the first time. <laughs> Today, we set the Wayback Machine to 1835. We set the Wayback Controls for Baltimore, Maryland in the year 1832. I did get an A in hockey, Mr. Peabody. That's hooky and step inside. Does that make you Mr. Peabody and us all Sherman? In 1835, the American Anti-Slavery Society took their abolitionist campaign to a new level with what can be only call be called the first direct mail campaign. The Society, founded two years earlier by Arthur and Louis Tappan of New York, mailed anti-slavery newspapers and printed materials to religious and civic leaders in the South. They selected names from newspapers, city directories, and other published lists. The ship carrying this, finger quotes, offensive mail, arrived at Charleston, South Carolina Harbor. The heavy, packed government mail sacks were full of the abolitionist mailers addressed to city leaders and were delivered to the post office. Charleston Postmaster Alfred Huger, who surprisingly was also one of the co-inventors of the tube sock, yeah. Well, he was torn between his federally mandated responsibility to deliver the mail and his allegiance to the Southern cause and set the abolitionist mail aside. That night, a group called the Lynchmen broke into the post office and stole those mailbags. Um, this is old news. We reported this, what, two weeks ago when they busted everybody in Southern California? No, that's a different group because this was like... Charleston a, is in Southern California. Yes, absolutely. And Char the, Charleston SC. Doesn't SC stand for Southern California? This is like 185 years ago? No. Well, if it was 185 years ago, they'd be getting out of their uh, prison terms right about now, right? <laughs> 
Why problem make when you no problem have, you don't want to make? Yeah. The next night, the group led a, finger quotes again, celebration of almost 2,000 spectators, joining in cheering and burning of that mail along with effigies of northern abolitionists. So I guess the police could uh, just run right out there and sweep up all the criminals. They knew exactly where they were. (laughs) In letters to Postmaster General Amos Kendall and New York Postmaster, uh, since the items had been mailed from New York City, they got involved. The Charleston Postman wrote back that nothing could have stopped the offended citizens from seizing the abolitionist mail, which was obviously in direct opposition to postal law. The Postmaster General's reply downplayed federal postal laws in favor of states' rights. He knew that although the South Carolinian was a federally appointed postmaster, he owed a higher allegiance to his community, saying that if the former be perverted to destroy the latter, it is patriotism to disregard them. This, to me, didn't make any sense whatsoever when I heard this. Uh, So the postmaster, he, he can look the other way when people destroy mail? I mean, this was where it was in the 1830s. That state's right things kind of goes on today, too, so. Yeah. Mm-hmm, it does. The Abolitionist Society's mail campaign was attacked by politicians across the South and also by sympathetic Northern leaders. In his message to Congress of that year, President Andrew Jackson sought legislation to prohibit abolitionist groups from using the postal system to deliver their mail South. He, he didn't succeed, though. No. no, no, no. And I like Andrew Jackson, and this to me sounded, you know, this... He was uh, anti-government and everything, but this kind of was dickheadishness. Let's say douchebaggery. The administration's hostility towards the abolitionist campaign included federal postal officials' refusal to chastise Southern postmasters for not delivering the mail, and a series of state laws were created to criminalize sending such inflammatory and seditious materials into Southern states. Well, at least it wasn't a I guess, porn like we discussed last week, but this is um, blatant censorship. Uh, This is very, very odd. I I had no clue this occurred. This brought an end to the Abolitionist Society's mail campaign. The brief 1835 direct mail anti-slavery campaign was relatively short-lived and unsuccessful in the short run, but it found success in the long run by spurring the slavery question into wider national debate. And everybody lived happily ever after. Yeah, not so much, because then there was a civil war. Talking about abolitionists, did you know that, is it Lysander? Lysander Spooner, my hero. Lysander Spooner. Now this guy I know about. Although I didn't know this part. What, that he was another co-inventor of the tube sock? Oh, that too, yes. (laughs) Yeah, well, he attained his greatest fame as a figure in the abolitionist movement. Um, Well, no, he was a famous postal... He ran a postal company that competed with the U.S. Post Office. Private mail. Private mail, yeah, private carrier service in the 1840s. Early FedEx. Yep, uh, he for, he basically was one of the people who forced the post office to get realistic in how much it charged and what service it provided. Okay, we stamp collectors know him as the anti-government guy who started the American Letter Service that went head-to-head with the post office, but he also wrote the book titled The Unconstitutionality of Slavery in 1845, 10 years after this. So we all know now that everybody lived happily ever after. 
except for the Civil War. I like that one. (laughs) It is interesting. Actually, the book argued that keeping the free states in a political union with the slave states made the citizens of the free states complicit in the slave system. Yep, that's fighting words. Spooner used a complex system of legal and natural law arguments in order to show that the Constitution, which sort of was being interpreted as supporting slavery, actually did not. I missed that part in high school civics class, but uh, go on. It gets worse. Spooner circulated a plan for the abolition of slavery, calling for the use of guerrilla warfare against slaveholders by black slaves and non-slaveholding free southerners with aid from northern abolitionists. I kind of wonder if he used the uh, American Letter Company to mail this stuff. I, I have to go through now and look at all the American Letter stuff to see if it has abolitionist mail in it. See if he mailed his own stuff? Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. he, he would. I, I can't see that he wouldn't. If he owned the company, he would have used it to move his stuff. So out there, everybody look in your American Letter stuff to see if there's any abolitionist mail in it. In 1860, Spooner was actively courted to support the fledgling Republican Party. Yeah, this is interesting. Uh, You know who the first candidate of the Republican Party is? And it's not Abraham Lincoln. Not a clue. John C. Fremont, the guy who ran around all through California and set up his uh, fort on top of the hills shooting down in San Francisco and stuff. It was great. He had had, I think, a force of 24 people. And they came in and they conquered California. It was not a well-armed state. So that's what the city's named after is him? Yep. The city of Fremont. Uh, several, several schools. Several, many, many no schools. Clue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he's an interesting guy. He was a, a, not a freebooter, a, um, a, what do they call those guys? Um, can't remember the name, but it's a cool name. Like, it sounds like it makes him a buccaneer. Pull up John C. Fremont real quick. I've got this word stuck in my head, and I'm not going to be able to think about anything until it gets out of there. <laughs> Uh, it's like free, free booter or uh, buccaneer or jack booted thugs. Jack booted <laughs> thugs. What did they call him? He was uh, he was a um blah, blah. <laughs> Can you spell that? <laughs> it starts B L A H A A. So you guys have lots of fun doing this. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, it's on. It's like it's stuck in my. It's a um. Oh well. I think give up on that word for now. Okay, I'm going mm-hmm. to give up on it. Let it go. Anyway, he ran against uh, um. Oh, he, he, that word is now blocking out my mind of everybody else. Look, uh, he, look it up and you have Cash's corrections for next time. Oh, there you That's go. That's right. Okay. There you go. Well, he ran against Buchanan and everybody. There's a story that the best looking president always wins. He was really much better looking than everybody he was running against and he lost. He, he was a bit of a, a weird guy, though. He ran around and did weird stuff. And, yeah, and it defined strange. I mean, what do you mean by... He, he was kind of like the Donald Trump of his time. 
except he wasn't rich. He was powerful. He had a lot of congressional ties and stuff like that. He was basically an outsider coming into the political parties. Wait a minute. I think I know which word you're trying to come up with. Uh-oh. This is my Jeopardy I know. practice. I know. I've got it. Filibuster. He was a filibuster. That's what they called him when they ran out like that. He was a filibuster. He talked forever? No, that's the thing. It, it, he conquered an area and went through all this stuff. If you look up the old definition of filibustering, he filibustering is like to adventure off and do stuff. It's not to stand up in Congress and talk. That was the word that was stuck in my head. Okay. Anyway, he's an interesting fellow. Anybody who wants to do some research... Uh, Maybe we'll do a podcast show. I have several philatelic covers from uh, the 1855-1854 period with him on it, the campaign covers. Uh, very interesting fellow, and he does have a philatelic tie. So, Back to Spooner. The Republicans were hypocrites for purporting to oppose slavery's expansion, but refusing to take a strong, consistent moral stance against slavery itself. Ouch. He had advocated the use of violence to abolish slavery. He denounced the Republicans' use of violence to prevent the Southern states from seceding. That didn't work out so well. No, it didn't. He published several letters and pamphlets about the war, arguing that the Republican objective was not to eradicate slavery, but rather to preserve slavery and the Union by force. See, this here, if he, if he did letters and pamphlets, you know ha they had to go through the mail. So again, did they go American Letter Company or something else? I've got, I really want to find Spooner abolitionist stuff now. That's my new quest. Somebody has an exclamation point over their head and I'll click on them. That's a, that's a World of Warcraft reference for those who missed it. Interestingly, Spooner recognized the rights of the Confederate States of America to secede as the manifestation of government by consent, a constitutional and legal principle fundamental to Spooner's philosophy. This same philosophy powered his formation of the company that competed with the post office. He opposed the Civil War, arguing that it violated the right of the South. Now, I, I, if he was like pro-Civil War, but anti-slavery, that's interesting. I, I really need to find some of his stuff. Yeah, for those of you interested in the actual stamps, they were issued in 1844. They are Scott's number 5L1 through 5L3. They're two different designs. Both of them are black stamps with eagles on them. So, you know, very patriotic looking stamps. It's called the American Letter Mail Company. They were issued in sheets of 20. You can find them. They're, some of them are rather expensive, but most of them aren't. So if you want a uh, souvenir of this fellow, they are easy to get if you uh, go on eBay or any place. I love it, like I said, because this is one of the first companies that competed against the post office and really forced the post office to step up. And now for women in history. Speaking about abolitionists, Harriet Tubman is in the news. She will appear on the front of the $20 bill, relocating the above-mentioned slaveholding president, Andrew Jackson, to its rear. Just for your information, Founding Father Alexander Hamilton will remain on the face of the $10 bill. So didn't uh, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson also have slaves? Yes. yes. Are, are they moving to the back of their bills also? or 
is this purely a symbolic thing that means nothing. Well, this wasn't really about slavery, Cash. It was about putting a woman on. I know. That's the whole thing is it started with uh, we need to put a woman on stamps and then let's check on the women. And then all of a sudden, oh, Harriet Tubman got a bunch of votes. Let's do women and slavery. The changes were announced last week by Treasury Secretary Jack Lew as part of a historic overhaul of U.S. currency aimed at addressing America's legacy of slavery and gender inequality. No, it wasn't. It was to put a woman on the bills because only men had applied or been on the bills except for Martha Washington, right? She was on a, what was she on? She was on the uh, larger banknote series. What, what denomination, just curious? <clears throat> One dollar bills. So, so she lost out to George Washington. He was on the two when they were doing her on the one. Ah, so, the, okay. Yeah, we made it on Coys. We hadn't got it on the, the green stuff. Mm. They had an online campaign to feature a woman on the $10 bill, and later, well, Andrew Jackson got the hit, and Hamilton was spared. Hamilton, by the way, was a big-time anti-slavery advocate. We, we discussed that on the Hamilton episode, which was episode number 84 for anybody who's interested. The saga over how U.S. currency would recognize the role of women and minorities has been fraught since the Treasury's announcement last summer that it would seek to feature a woman on the $10 bill. So they had an idea that accomplished nothing and then bowed to pre- pressure to change it. <laughs> USA, right? Yeah. And now for Cash's corrections. Cash. So I had uh, gone to the Long Beach stamp show and uh, at Steve Patillo's table, there was a 50th anniversary of Star Trek book that had every episode in it, and then it had stamps on it. Now, I thought this was interesting because I, when I first saw it, I go, what Star Trek stamps and how would they have done it? They actually went to Zazzle, and in Zazzle, you can put your own picture on a stamp. I was just going to ask, what's a Zazzle? Yeah, Zazzle is a company that prints personalized stamps for people. Is it close to Zizix? It's not anywhere near Zizix. Well, maybe it is. Maybe they have a branch office in Zizix. You can send them a picture, and then they'll put it on it. A lot of companies use their logos. Uh, I know that uh, when my kids were born, I made them with the kids' pictures on them so they'd have first day covers. Anyway, they printed two stamps for every episode. So, like, you have the green alien on a Zazzle stamp. They're all 44 cent stamps, by the way. And uh, you have the Tribbles and you have William Shatner and everything on all these individual stamps. And I believe there were 49 episodes. So there's 100 stamps in it in the set. Or are there? No, no, there's 79. 79 episodes. So each one has 88 cents worth of stamps because I knew it came out to like $100 in face. Anyway, I thought that was very interesting. Second thing is, this keeps coming up, rare versus scarce. And a person named Acupurilis, he said that in biology, scarce is the level below rare. So it goes common, uncommon, scarce, rare when you're in biology. In biology, naturally rare means that there are less than 15 of the things out there. 
The next thing is uh, there's an interesting cover, and we're going to put this up because I thought this was really neat. It's from Iceland, and it doesn't have an address on it. Instead, it shows a map of how the postman can get to the person's house. And it has the county, the city, and then it says the name, a horse farm with an Icelandic Danish couple, three kids, and a lot of sheep. And then it shows where it is on a map. So I thought this was really interesting. Google Maps on stamps. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Ray, you have uh, one of those, or you knew about one, uh, Dr. No in Philippines. Yes, uh, sending stuff to Dr. No. Who is not of Bond villain, by the way. Who's what? Doctor No, you've never heard of Doctor oh, No. Oh, he's not. He's yeah, yeah. He's not James Bond. Okay. <laughs> it's spelled G N O. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, and when I would send mail to him, they would give you a, the city, the street, the building, the floor, the door, the window, whatever. <laughs> and the last thing is, uh, we were contacted by Chicago Packs to give them, or they sent me an actual press release. And so uh, we are going to be at Chicago Pack, so I'm going to go ahead and sort of read a condensed version here of their press release. The Chicago Philatelic Society will present its 103rd annual philatelic... 130th. <laughs> the Chicago Philatelic Society will present its 130th annual philatelic expedition, Chicago Pack's... Exhibition. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> okay, maybe I'm not going to read this entire press release. Anyway, it's Should November, I read it for it's you? No, <laughs> November, it for yeah, it's November 18th through the 20th. It's at the Westin Chicago Northwest in Itzaca, Illinois. This year's show, the theme is uh, celebrating 60 years of Europa stamps. And I think probably this is the only place you can celebrate Europa stamps anywhere in the world. That's right. <laughs> Do people still collect Europa stamps? I find them the hardest ones to sell. Yeah, that, that's what a, are Europa stamps? Yeah, what are Europa stamps? Well, stamps issued in, by the different European countries, and they did a, a lot of common design. They did some of their own designs, but they did them starting in 1956, and they're still doing them now. And they've added countries as they went along. The original group, I think, was only eight countries in 1956. The coal countries. Yeah, they um, were. They wanted to make a European postal union, and failed miserably. But anyway, so they still have these uh, stamps that they issue in the hopes that one day there will be a Europa. Although, you know, with the uh, European Union and stuff, you'd kind of expect it would be easier, not harder. But they're having a hard time keeping that together, too. Well, there was a company that, you know, had people investing in them there a few years back, and that was a big failure. <laughs> and we're going to talk about investing later, so that'll fit right in. Anyway, there will be approximately 300 frames of philatelic material on display with something of interest for all attending the show. 2016 also marks the 50th anniversary of the Philatelic Literature Competition. That's of interest to us because we put this podcast and also the Book of Secrets in for competition, so we'll see if we get a medal. If we do, we'll uh, do rah-rah, and if we don't, you'll never hear of it again. The show will also have uh, 75 dealers, and it'll have an auction from Regency Superior. So uh, shout out to Wayne Youngblood, 
Also, the admission and parking is free, which is nice because I just went to the Long Beach Stamp Show and it cost me 14 bucks. And you're about to go to Sescal next weekend, which will cost you to park there too. Yeah, mm -hmm. parking there, and, and we're going to have a table and we still have to pay for parking. Mm -hmm. So uh, everybody go to Chicago Pex. No matter where you are, if you if you are listening to this podcast, hop on a plane real quick and fly over. Well, not right now. It's a little early. Oh, okay. And then lastly, why does a milking stool only have three legs? can't believe you wrote it this. Because the cow has the udder. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it for me. Can we get wah, wah, wah? <laughs> Actually. <laughs> fail. Price is right failure. <laughs> and now our expert topic. Investing in stamps. With Lens Magazine making a statement that they avoid this topic, well, then we have to address it head on like an old biplane hitting a barn or a lion taking down a wounded gazelle. Recently, the Offensa, is that correct? Mm -hmm. The Offensa investment company didn't do so well with its investors' money. They lost it, and the directors are probably heading to jail. New party. <laughs> what? <clears throat> New party? New party. Yeah, they when that this all happened, the government in power over in Spain, you know, was going to put all these guys in jail, but they changed parties and they were their buddies, so they let them go. <laughs> it's not what you know, it's who you know. <laughs> yes. Don't give me a lawyer who knows the law, give me a lawyer who knows the judge. <laughs> On the other hand, Bill Gross, who was a big hedge fund manager, made big money with stamps. So with what we will call, finger quotes, value buying. Buyers. Buyers. I don't, I don't want to do finger quotes. Nobody can see me do it anyways. Well, that's why you say it. I, I've been finger quoting. The entire show. Yeah. <laughs> Which actually sounds almost dirty. <laughs> <laughs> so with what we will call value buyers outing more money into the stamp market, and us having Ray here. Ray, what do you see in the market today, and what do you think of stamp investing? Well, the market's still pretty strong. People are still buying. There is a diminishing number of people coming to the shows. Uh, but sellers still seem to be doing well enough that many dealers are still doing them all over the country, and there are a lot of shows throughout the country. So you know there's a lot of collectors. As far as investing, I don't recommend anybody to invest uh, outright to thinking they're going to make money because you're buying retail and we're, we're buying wholesale. So when you sell it to somebody like me, there's a percentage that you're going to lose. But uh, some people get lucky and they invest in the they do buy the right stamps and they do go up. You know, in the past, China was one of those countries where you bought stuff for a couple bucks and now it's going for hundreds, even thousands. So, uh, but as far as investing, I tell people, look at it like you play golf. You go out and play around the golf. You spend the money. There's nothing left, at least with a stamp collection. You have value in your stamp collection. That it has, does have some return at the end, and you still had all the enjoyment, just a different kind of enjoyment. Well, one of the things that I kind of fault both <laughs> the uh, Afinsa people and also the Stanley Gibbons people is that they really didn't know anything about stamps. That was the big criticism, is these people were not stamp collectors, and they're investing in something that they really have no clue about. Probably 99% of the problems of investing in stamps in these hedge funds 
would have been totally avoided if the people had been stamp collectors. And quite frankly, if they had been stamp collectors, they wouldn't have invested in these hedge funds to begin with because they realize the risks that are involved. Everybody should do some research before they invest, regardless of what they're investing in. I mean, even if you're investing in gold, you know, there's not a whole lot to know, but you better know what you're getting because there are investors in gold who get ripped off. You think that that's the easy stuff. We're not asking, you know, we're not telling people to invest in, you know, things that just are weird. The big uh, complaint was that people were getting like phone calls and they're saying, hey, did you know that stamps went up 45% last year? And they go, oh, no, I didn't. And you go, would you like to invest money? Go, oh, yeah, I would. And so, you know, boom, recipe for disaster. Well, that gets, I think, out of any sort of investment because there's people that'll go to like a financial planner and they'll say, oh, well, you need this, 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 and this. And they're like, okay. It's like, do you know what it is? No. Then why did you do it? Yeah. <laughs> if you don't understand it, don't do it. Yeah. Ask questions. And if your financial planner can't explain it to you, you need a new guy. Yeah, that's true. That too. So yeah, I like, but I did do like what Ray said about you should treat it sort of like golf with a payoff at the end. And that's what I always tell people is, you know, you can enjoy it, you can have fun with it. And at the end of the day, you have something that has value. It's not like uh, model train collecting where you can spend huge amounts of money and not expect to really get anything back. I mean, a very, very small percentage. Generally speaking, with stamps, you will get a fair percentage of your investment back given, let's say, five to ten year horizon. I mean, you're not going to make money, obviously, in a year or something like that unless just you're incredibly lucky. And so if luck's involved, it kind of tends not to be an investment. Well, and I think if you're talking short term like that, it's not really an investment either. Yeah, I mean, it's I more mean, gambling. I think of investing as yeah, long term, long term for investing. Yeah, I mean we do we do short term gambles. We bought the Apple stamps, the ten cent Apple stamps, and that turned out to not be a good investment. So now they're being used for postage. So we're getting our money back. <laughs> Just not making anything. Just not making mm-hmm, anything. Yeah. yeah, we're high tech. I'm impressed. <laughs> I, I really like what you guys do. No, thank you. Because you, it's not just about stamps. It's not just buying and selling. The I mean, talking about the collectors, talking about your collection, you throw all this other stuff in. It's about the abolition, you know, there's interesting things. Hopefully, now that you're going to look for uh, Fremont stuff or then the other guy, or what was it? Oh, yeah. Fremont and Spooner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There'll be other people wanting to do it. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, we just uh, created a bunch of demand that's going to drive up the price I have to pay for all this stuff. Well, yeah. I want to know how many people are hitting the itocratic.com website now. Oh, oh yeah. Last week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Last, last week, we spoke about the Comstock Law and itocratic. And I'll let you just listen about it. But it's about censorship in the mail. And that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. The lady itocratic. Oh, Yeah. Why don't we wrap this up then? Okay. This is uh, it's getting stuffy in here. We would like to thank the following for information used in this podcast. Wikipedia, National Postal History Museum, and NPR's Backstory. And Ray, thanks for joining us. It's fun having you with us. Yes, Ray. Thank you for having me. It's a descendant. 
And thank you for joining us for episode 92. This has been Cash, Tom, Ray, and I'm your host, Dawn. You can reach us with your questions or comments at stampshowheretoday at gmail.com, Twitter at stampshowht, or leave a message on our Google Voice number, 1-949-873-4298. You can also check out our website at stampshowheretoday.com, or follow us on Facebook, or watch us on YouTube. And as always, keep collecting. Hello, everyone. My name is David Kugel, and I am one of the co-owners of Daniel F. Kelleher Auctions and Kelleher and Rogers Fine Agent Auctions. I would like to present our firm's growing list of services available to you in terms of how to go about selling a stamp collection and the steps one would take to achieve the best results for you. We provide boutique auction services to 100% of the philatelic market. All collectors with collections as little as $5,000 to collections reaching well into seven figures. We sell to more collectors than any other auction firm. Our diverse mailing list of active bidders is the world's largest. This is evidenced by higher prices realized due to collector competition and more underbidders. See for yourself at our website, www.kelleherauctions.com. We are the only American-owned international philatelic auction firm with offices in the United States, United Kingdom, and Hong Kong. We are also the publishers of the Kelleher's Collector's Connection, already one of the premier magazines in philately with a worldwide circulation. Any collector may subscribe without charge. Call, visit our website, or email us now. Let us work for you. The results will speak for themselves. And you can contact us toll-free in the United States at 877-316-2895. We are so delighted to be one of this podcast hosts today and really, really encourage you to enjoy philately, the hobby that allows one to enjoy life and live longer. This episode of Stamp Show Here Today is brought to you by the Philatelic Book of Secrets, the book that teaches you about repurse, regums, color varieties, and much more. Get yours for $10 at www.philatelicsecrets.com today. We had a borrow, a lover's spider.